Turn with me over to Luke chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 40 through 56. And the title is, Jesus Ready for the Desperate. Now in our last study, we saw that he was ready for a desperate demoniac, right? There was a man that had a legion of demons, um, and he, his life was ruined. I mean, his life was, was destructive. People were afraid of him. They tried to chain him up. They tried to hold him down. And when Jesus came and saw that man and spoke to him, he liberated him and he set him free. And he became a follower and a disciple of Jesus. Well, in our closing look at chapter 8, we're going to see two more desperate people. We're going to see two families that are, that are filling the desperation of the hour. And maybe that's where you are or you know somebody right now that is right there. You know somebody that's going through it, and, and you um, take the notes. You can pass these things on and let them know that Jesus is ready for them. Now, the, here's the truth and the reality. We can want to help <clears throat> one another, and we can help each other, and we can be there for uh, each other, but we can't be there for everyone, can we? There's only, the, our shoulders are only so broad. We can only take so much on. And then it's, then it's it, just because of time, because of energy, because of uh, just human capabilities. But Jesus is ready for everyone that's desperate. Could you imagine if every desperate person in Lynchburg showed up at your house tonight? I mean, once it's be excited to point them to Jesus, but I, I mean, if they came to you to help them, you're the answer to their problem. Could you imagine that kind of uh, responsibility? And yet Jesus, he's, he invites people to come to him. He invites people to come in their desperation. You might see a desperate scene and you might want to try and avoid it. Jesus runs into the middle of it. And so I love this picture we are seeing of Jesus as just a compassionate redeemer that Luke is painting uh, for his friend Theophilus and, of course, for all readers of the scriptures. The Lord says the broken and the contrite he cannot despise. Desperation is a good thing before the presence of the Lord. Desperation all by yourself is terrible. It's a, it's a miserable thing. But to be desperate before the Lord is to be in a place where the Lord can meet you, where he wants to meet you. Um, the, the heart of the Lord is People that come to me in desperation and look to me, I can't turn them away. I'm a softie. They come, and whether they're coming in repentance, whether they're coming in some desperate need in their life, the Lord receives us to himself. We're going to see some people that are desperate. And I think it's so important, whether we want to use the word desperate, maybe that's like taking it all the way to a you know, level 10 kind of a situation. But maybe we should just, maybe there's not a desperate situation, but how about expectation? That, that our expectation is still on the Lord. Our eyes are still looking to him. And we are going to see this in our passage tonight as well. So let's begin reading. Um, we'll pick up at verses 40 and we'll... Take it down to verse 42, and we're going to see the petition of a desperate father. So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man, Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he had, only, uh, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Interesting contrast to make there in the beginning of verse 40, that as Jesus returned there, they welcomed him and they were waiting for him. But let's just back up um, a couple of verses. And, and we see in verse 38, now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. Again, there's this says, I want you. I want to be with you. But if we back up further into the chapter, we see that the people who lost their livelihood with this herd of swine, they were begging him to leave. So on the eastern shore, you have a community 
They're saying, get out of here. Leave us alone. Please just take you and your healing powers and get out of here. As he leaves the eastern shore and sails back across, most likely to Capernaum, headquarters for Jesus. And as he gets there, he finds a place that has swollen with desperate need. And they are waiting for them. What a contrast. What, what a difference. Now, if you remember, on their way over to Gerasa, where the demon-possessed uh, man was, they ran into a storm. And it, it, there's some indication, can't be def, you know, dogmatic about it, but there's some indication that maybe even that storm was demonically inspired because the same words that Jesus speaks to the demons that possess the man are similar to the words that he speaks to the storm and rebukes them. But not every time we step out in ministry are we going to hit a storm, right? Sometimes you're going to head into ministry and you're going to hit a storm. And you're going to get there and you're going to watch the Lord do amazing things. Other times you're going to head back and there's going to be no storm at all. It's just going to be smooth sailing. And, you're not, and rather than having people reject you, you're going to have people waiting for you. And we never know. We never know what kind of uh, day we're going to have, what kind of week we're going to have. Sometimes the Lord will whisper things into our ears, won't he? And he'll just kind of prepare us. And we'll, we'll encounter that situation and we'll think, you know, I'm not surprised. Because I, I just kind of sense that the Lord was saying, get ready. But what we read there in verse 40 is they welcomed him and they were waiting. Um, and the, the verb for um, were there in verse 40, it's that, it's that past tense, it's called the imperfect. It's one that has the idea of continuing action going on. So think of it like a, a movie reeling in the reel, um, playing out. They're in this action of, of waiting for him. There's other times where uh, a verb is used, which is more like a snapshot. Something happened in a point in time. It's like a still photo. Um, and, and that would indicate kind of the action of the verb. The action of this verb is, think movie reel. They're waiting. There's anticipation. They're waiting and they're waiting. They're, they are looking for him to come. And they are not going to be disappointed as he shows up and begins to meet them. Now, this word for um, waiting is a word that could also be used and is used actually in Scripture in other contexts for the waiting for the Messiah to come or for the waiting for the return of the Lord. And this needs to be in our heart and this needs to be in our life is that we are waiting, that we're looking for. The Bible talks about a crown that will be given to those that love His appearing. There's that sense of anticipation, hastening the coming of the Lord. Behold, he is at the door. We, we read over and over in Scripture about the imminency and the soon return of Jesus, which is all motivate, should all motivate us to be looking and to be ready and to be waiting. But see, this is the thing. And Jesus even warned about this, is that some can, can lose heart in that waiting. Some can begin to grow cold in that waiting. It's like, well, I've been waiting for a long time. And he hasn't come back. Well, listen, the Lord has his timetable, and he's not going to do it according to yours or to mine. And he knew when he was telling us that we should wait, he knew that there would be, um, the Father knew there was going to be you know, generations of the church that would, would, would go. But he still called us knowing ahead of time that we should be waiting. So this is the only thing you can deduce from that is that G, the Lord Jesus, the Father, wants all of us to be in that continual mindset of anticipation and waiting for the return of the Lord. They're waiting for him to come to the, to the shore. They're watching, and they probably can see him. It's, if it was a clear day, they would have easily seen him approaching. And they would have saw that. And that you can just imagine it began to get amped up in town. And the, pretty soon there's going to be throngs of people around him, right? Um, before, if we read in the other account, before he gets to this father, they heal a man that's a paralytic. They bring this man to, to Jesus. It's, um, it's in another one of the gospel accounts. 
But here the first person we see him encounter is Jairus. But just ask yourself, what is your heart like? If, think about it. Let's apply it, right? Jesus is not going to sail across Smith Mountain Lake to us tonight, right? So that we, we're not going to do that. But he is coming for us. He is going to come back. He is going to arrive on the shores of this earth again. And will we be found waiting? And will we be found watching? Or will we be like those stewards that said, oh, his delay is coming. Don't worry about it. Begin to beat our servants, right? So this is a, the parable that Jesus gave. To say, don't be like that. Be in anticipation of my return. And uh, listen, I know there's been... Over the years, over the generations of the church, there's been people that have said, he's going to come by this date. He's going to come by this date. I won't give you a date, but he's definitely coming before, you know, uh, May 2021. Well, I think you just gave a date, actually. This is what I think you did. You know, and, and we, we've had that. And if you've gotten caught up into those, uh, some of those things and you are fully convinced on a date and the time of the return of the Lord, that can be disheartening. You can feel like your hands are being slapped down. And th that joy and anticipation of the Lord can begin to, you know, wane. Or may, maybe you got caught up in, in some of the, you know, the blood moon things that were, you know, happening. The blood moon and that this is going to happen. And so something's going to happen. And books were written and seminars were, were given and nothing happened. And you can, feel, you can feel like you've been cheated. You've been, you know, robbed. And there's these different things that have happened. But listen, that's, that's people that are excited about Jesus, trying to get others excited about Jesus and going a little overboard and not being measured. So you take all of that and you set it aside, and this is what you have in Scripture, is love his appearing. Be found waiting. Be watching in expectation of him. That is scripture. Okay, what's going to happen over in, uh, you know, Turkey next month is not necessarily scripture. And now, one day something is significant, is going to happen over in Turkey. You got your Bible, read it. Ezekiel 38 and 39. There's going to be things that are going to happen. But we don't know. We don't know. The Lord could come back right now. There's no, when we talk about the, the rapture of the church, nothing needs to happen for Jesus to return for the church. For the second coming, there's a whole bunch of things that are going to happen before he comes. And you can read it in the book of Revelation. You can make a long list of things that are going to happen before he comes. But for the rapture, there's no list. It's just, I'm coming. Be ready. And so, may we be like those that are waiting Turn with me over to First uh, Thessalonians chapter two. Um, some of the guys on staff and myself, we were um, actually we're, we're starting to do the Life Matters um, recordings again, and um, kind of a little sad doing it without our dear brother Scott. But um, we're, we're we're getting back to it, and we were studying. We were studying First uh, Thessalonians, and um, chapter two. Got it. And verse um, 13, it says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. First Thessalonians 2, verse 13. You see the similar kind of warm reception to the word of the Lord that Jesus is receiving as he makes his way to the city of Capernaum. And the idea behind the word received there in verse 13, so because when you receive the word of God, the word received has the idea of something gaining control or jurisdiction over something. Is that a good description of how you welcome the word of God into your heart? You, that you welcome the jurisdiction and the authority of God's word over your life. Hopefully that is our response. It's like when we find what God's word has to say or we're reminded and it corrects us of something that is out of place in our life is that we say you have control over me. 
It's the whole idea of lordship, right? I mean, this is not a foreign concept to us. But I, I just found it interesting to think about how it's the idea of, of uh, to gain control of or receive jurisdiction over. You allowed the word of God to come and have jurisdiction over your life. Does the word of God have that right in your life? What, whatever it says, whatever it would speak to your life. One of the questions that we frequently will ask people when we we do um, you know, sit down and pray together and have discipleship, have a counseling appointment is, let's just start here. Are you willing to be completely obedient to the word of God no matter what implications it may have upon your life? Not to my advice, but to the word of God. Because if the answer is, well, I don't know, then we need to have another conversation. We need to have a conversation not about your problem, but we need to have a conversation about the authority of the word of the Lord in your life. And, and the Thessalonians, they, they welcomed it in. The word welcome that we see there, it's that same um, idea of um, being hospitable. And so they, they were inhospitable. They're in uh, Gerasa on the eastern shore. Get out of here. But as he comes back to the western shore, they're, they're loving having him show up. It's a warm welcome. Applying it to our lives, looking at the Thessalonians, I, I just want you to ponder, what is your hospitality like towards the Word of God in your quiet time? In fellowship with brothers and sisters when the conversation turns to the, to the matters of the kingdom and begin to talk about Scripture, it's like, gosh, not this stuff again. Or is it like, oh yeah, tell me about what, what's going on. I, we, uh, Rebecca and myself have a friend um, I haven't spoke to her in many, many years, but her name was uh, Laura Short. And um, uh, we all were going to the same college as uh, community college there in um, Orange County, um, affectionately known as Tangerine Tech. Actually, it was called Orange Coast College, but we called it Tangerine Tech. And um, I saw her. Um, we were walking across campus, and I ran into her. We had a different class. I go, hey, Laura, how are you doing? She goes, so I am not doing good. She goes, I, I, I didn't have my quiet time. I didn't pray. I'm having a bad day. Share with me your quiet time. I was glad I had a quiet time that morning. You know what I mean? I'm like, well, actually, and I was able to share. She was ready to welcome the word of the Lord into her life. And th this is the posture we need to have. I mean, wh what would it feel like? Would it be a cold um, greeting at the door? You've gone to some people's homes, and you know when you go to certain people's homes, they have that gift of hospitality, and they make you feel so welcomed, and you're invited in, and you just love going to that place. And you've also maybe been to a place where they don't have the gift of hospitality. Maybe they're a little, you know, brash. Maybe they're a little cold, and, and you can tell. One of the, <laughs> my worst experience with this was a guy, a missionary, who brought me back to his house to stay for a couple of days overseas, and he forgot to tell his wife. She didn't handle it well. I hope she repented. But, um, I mean, I was like, oh, my gosh. I mean, she goes, well, you can sleep here, I guess. And it was a kitchen floor. I kid you not. And um, did not feel welcomed. I wonder if sometimes we're like, that's what we do with the Lord. He begins to speak to us. He calls us to get away with him. To open the word, to sit down and pray, to sit down and meditate. And we're like, ah, kitchen floor, Jesus. Kitchen floor. Our, our posture needs to be one that is welcoming. And what he goes on to say there in uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, they received the word of God. Um, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as in truth, it is the word of God. And then he says, which also effectively works in you who believe. Effectively, effectively that word for effectively is, is it's also an interesting word. And it means to bring one's capabilities to bear on a thing. To bring one's capabilities to bear on a thing. You know what the Word of God does? It brings God's capabilities to bear on your life. There in, in uh, Capernaum, they wanted the capabilities of Jesus to help with their paralytic friend, to help with their dying daughter, for that desperate woman who had the flow of blood for 12 years. They wanted that. They wanted the capabilities. They, they had come to the end of their capabilities. We need to be desperate and welcoming 
and asking for that jurisdiction of God's word to come over our life because it brings his capabilities. I know you know this, but let's just say it for a reminder. Bible study is not pastor's ideas. That's the Lord's idea. Is that we would have a place and a time where we could gather collectively and that we would hear the word of the Lord together and that we could feel its impact upon us, yes, individually, but collectively as well. There would be that collective sense of this is the word of the Lord to us as a body of believers um, gathered in, in you know, all the different places where she gathers and we hear the word of the Lord and we ask the Lord, bring your capabilities, bring those resources to bear upon my life. And when we are welcoming it and receiving its jurisdiction, it will bring its capabilities in our life and it will change us. Amen? It can change you tonight. Well, I'm already a Christian. It can keep on changing you, that process of sanctification. It needs to keep on changing. It needs to keep on reforming. It needs to keep on sanding off the rough edges and keep on working. And so the place for the word of God in our life. We're not going to have a chance to stand on the shore of Capernaum in this lifetime and welcome Jesus off the boat. But every morning you wake up, before you go to bed, every time you walk into the church, every time you walk into that home fellowship, every time you walk in to serve, you have that capability to welcome Jesus into your life. And as a matter of fact, in John, the Lord said that he wants to dwell in us and make our hearts his home and manifest himself to us. So again, there should be that, the needle should be pegged to like 10 with expectation, both of the return of the Lord, but also whether we experience the rapture of the church in our lifetime, we won't know, but you have this as a certainty, is you have the, the opportunity right now to welcome the word of the Lord into your life and let it have its impact upon you. This is why we gather. This is why we come uh, to study the word together. Well, in verse 40. And in 41 and 42 there, we see Jairus. He comes. He's a ruler of the synagogue. Um, it was a prestigious position to hold. You were kind of nominated by this. Um, and you would have all kinds of, of, of responsibilities. Um, you would be in oversight of the physical side of the building, making sure the scrolls were there for reading. You would be there for um, um, making sure that things went in an orderly fashion. Um, there for arranging the prayers. And I mean, there, there's a lot of responsibilities that um, a ruler of the synagogue had. You can be certain that the ruler, this Jairus, that he was well aware of what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were thinking about him. There's no way that this has escaped his attention. When Jesus had healed that man that was let down through the roof, and he said, your sins are forgiven you. There's no way he was oblivious to the fact, even if he wasn't there, in his position, he would have known that Jesus said that he could, you know, could forgive sins, but that he also, this person stood up or walked. He, he also would have been well aware of that woman that came with that alabaster flask and broke it and poured out that oil upon the feet of Jesus and wiped them with her hair. He would have known that story. He would have been well aware of, um, what was that guy's name? Was it Simon? I forget exactly what that Pharisee's name was. I think, I think it might have been Simon. But he would have been aware that, that this guy said, this man's not a prophet. If he was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this was. And there's no way he would let her touch him. He knew all these things. He was, I mean, he was part of the circle. Not a Pharisee necessarily, but certainly one that would have known the conversations that were going on. And here he comes to Jesus. Why? Because he's desperate. His daughter is in need. She is not just sick. What, what do we read here? She is dying. And that causes everything, that pressure that Jairus would have felt about what are the, what's Simon going to think and what are the Pharisees going to think and what are the scribes. And if he thought for a moment... You know, well, I don't know if I can go to Jesus. His wife would have quickly corrected him on that matter, don't you think? 
Get over yourself. You are going to find Jesus and you are bringing him back here or you're not coming back at all. I don't care what those guys have to say. He raises people from the dead. He, people stand up and they walk. You know the man that he healed. Go get him. Um, we have no indication that she had to do that, but one way or the other, whether it was him or whatever else, they were going to get Jesus to come because their daughter is actually, they're watching her die. And so they come and um, ask him, please come over. You know, the name of um, Jairus means God enlightens. God enlightens. And... Um, yeah, his, his mind is, is open wide now. And if he was even has the slightest bit of doubt, he's going to be fully convinced before we get to chapter 9. This idea that obviously Jairus was not going to let impact his life, that what are the Pharisees going to think if I go and get him? What are the other people in the community going to think? I mean, I'm I'm like the president of the Jewish community here in Capernaum. What are they going to say about me when I go to this one who says he can forgive sins? What's going to happen? That was not the issue, but we're all very familiar with the fear of man and how it can lead us to do some pretty dumb things. You might want to write down, just as a cross-reference, Mark chapter 6 Verses 21 through 28. And this is um, when Herod asks uh, for John the Baptist's head on a platter for his daughter, although he didn't want to do that. But because he feared the company that were there and didn't want to be seen as turning it down, he went ahead and he asked for the head of John the Baptist. And, and that's when John the Baptist died. But it was because he feared man. He, I mean, he, he was willing to take a man's life because of his pride. And, uh, you know, I don't know that any of us are in that kind of a circumstance or situation, but beware of the fear of man. Um, it's the fear of God that really needs to dominate us and, and drive us into our decisions. And I think... Really, Jairus becomes a picture. There's four points I want to just draw out, and then we'll move on to the next verses, but we're still in verses 40 through 43. But there's four things I want us to see about the way Jairus comes. Number one, we just got to come and we got to ask. <laughs> You've got to ask. He comes to him and he asks. Secondly, he comes with humility, falling at the feet of Jesus. There's no pride. There's no arrogance. There is raw human emotion and desperation. And he does not care. Everybody knows by the end of the day that Jairus fell at the feet of Jesus and begged him to intervene in his life. Brokenness. Again, the Lord can't reject that. Humility. The Lord is a softy for it. Um, So he he comes with humility. Humility. He he begs, the idea being, there's a fervency about it. So he comes and he asks. He's humble, but he's also fervent in need. I mean, this is not just a casual, you know, if you would, you know, if you get some time in your schedule today and you'd like to do a miracle, I could use one over at my house. No, there's none of that. I've got to have you at my house. Fervency. And fourth, he has faith. He has faith. How much faith does he have? Enough faith to ask. (laughs) How much faith do we have to have? Enough faith to ask. And maybe sometimes even when we come, we might pray like that father who prayed, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. You know, faith is important. We're going to see it here tonight. So very, very important. Jesus could do no mighty work because of a lack of faith. But God is the one that we put our faith in. We don't put our faith in our faith. What what does that even mean? Don't put your faith in your faith. If I could just have enough faith, then God would work. No, you're putting faith in your ability to have more faith. 
That's not, that's not the object of our faith. Faith is, the object of our faith is the Lord. And so whether you come as a father that says, help my unbelief, whether you come as a Jairus who maybe had other opinions of Jesus until he's in this desperate situation, whatever it was, he came with faith and God is moved by people who have faith. As we continue reading, we're going to see that. So those four points. We ask, we come with humility, we come with fervency, and we come with faith. Important elements. Let's continue reading. Um, and as we get into verses 43 through 48 here, we're going to see the faith of a desperate outcast. Now, it's not immediately obvious that this woman was an outcast. However, we're going to read that she has a flow of blood uh, for 12 years, which would have made her unclean, and anybody would have, who would have touched her would have been unclean. And what we're going to read is, uh, and I know I'm kind of giving the story away before I read it, but as I read it, I want you to feel the tension. She is pressing through a throng of people, and she's not, there's not supposed to come in contact with her. She's pressing through a throng of people to reach out and touch the rabbi that everybody wants to see. And um, we'll find out in this, this story. I mean, there's, there's, there's some trembling going on. She has faith, but she's afraid at the same time. Let's, let's read this account. Verse 43. Now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years, who has spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, her worst nightmare come true. Who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, oh, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, who touched me? In other words, what's Peter saying? Like, you're asking who touched you. I think the question really should be, who didn't touch you? Everybody's touching you, Jesus. You're, I mean, we're, we're, we're squished in here like sardines because people want to get to you. And so he's saying everybody touched. <laughs> now, Peter's never short on correcting Jesus, is he? I mean, it's like, you know, I think you got it wrong here. You're focused on the wrong thing. But Jesus said, somebody touched me. For I perceived power going out from me. I sensed the working of the Spirit of God go out of my body. I sensed that something happened. Verse 47 now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, and I, I pondered this, what, how did she know she wasn't hidden? Right now nobody knows who it is. And all I can think is that Jesus, he's asking the question, but you know sometimes we ask questions not to gain information. Sometimes we ask questions just to give somebody the opportunity to step up and say something. And I think that's what's going on. I don't think Jesus is ignorant of who touched him. I think he knows. So the question, who touched me? He knows the answer. The question is not for him to gain information. The question is an opportunity for the woman to raise her hand. So in my humble opinion, his eyes are on her. Through the whole crowd, his eyes are right on her. And, um, and I think this is what is meant when we read that when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. So she had backed off in the crowd, my, my interpretation here. She had backed off into the crowd. She probably is smiling and she is happy and she is nervous and maybe crying. And, tr and we're going to find out she's actually shaking, trembling. I mean, it's shaking. It's that kind of tremble that we're talking about. You know, we use the word, you know, tremble sometimes. And um, we use it more like a metaphor than the, a real literal description but she's shaking um, is what we're going to read. And so she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. But I mean, this is such a, I mean, an emotional scene. For 12 years, she's out of money. She's risking everything. She's moving through the crowd. 
She's trying to get down low, get her hand in there from, you know, behind and touch the hem of his garment and then just back away and just melt into the crowd and go home. But Jesus is like, no, no, no. I don't want you just to have an experience with my power. I want you to have an experience with me. I want to talk to you. I want to interact with you. Jesus is doing this because he's calling this woman into a deeper experience and relationship with him. Sometimes we are like this woman and we would be content with just the answer prayer. Just say yes, say no, say how much, say how high. Just speak the word, Lord, let it get done, and then I'm out of here. He's like, no, 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 you're not going anywhere. We're going to talk for a little while. Who touched me? Spend some time with me. And this is the heart of the Lord. Now here she is, trembling. She's telling her story. You can hear her voice just you know, quaking as she talks. And then Jesus says to her daughter. Now this is a, this is a tender word to speak. Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And this is the heart of our Lord. So for 12 years, she's had this flow of blood. Depending on how strict she was, she would have lived maybe like a leper. Just to try and get it in your mind of what this would have been like in the culture at this time. And now she has the guts to finally go out into the public and to reach out and touch Jesus and you know she's not wanting to be called out and she's called out because Jesus is calling her up he's not just calling her out to humiliate her he's wanting her to give testimony give testimony who touched me this is testimony time you come forward but you know for her to begin to say what she had to say you know, are people going to begin to wonder, is the man and the woman that I kind of bumped past and squeezed past, are they going to, they're going to think, wait, she touched us and she's had a flow of blood for 12 years? I mean, all this is kind of going on in her mind. You can imagine it. That's why she's trembling. And yet when the Lord hears the story, he goes, I'm happy for you. Feel good. This is a great thing. Let's rejoice together. And he speaks to her so tenderly. And now she's able to give glory to the Lord. Now she's able to give testimony. It's interesting because sometimes Jesus says, go and tell no one. And we'll see a contrast as we read through the rest of this chapter. And sometimes Jesus, in the middle of a throng of people, says, who touched me? Or in other words, I like to have testimony time. Somebody was just healed. Tell us your story. Are you ever ashamed to tell your story? what you came out of, what the Lord delivered you out of. Like, well, try, I didn't grow up in a Christian home like you, and I don't, listen, glory to the Lord for what he's done in my life and for what he's done in your life. And if, if you have something that people maybe would, you would be afraid they're going to put their hand up over their mouth and just hear this story and begin to think, oh my, that's, listen, that's not going to happen. Hands may go up, but it's going to go up in worship. It's not going to go up in disgust. We get to hear, when we hear of what God has done in somebody's life and how he's pulled them out. I mean, what did he say to the demoniac? Go tell everybody what I did for you. How do, how do you begin, you know, your preaching sermon? I was a demoniac. I had a thousand demons in me. That can't be a comfortable way to tell your story, is it? I'm a woman that has had a flow of blood for 12 years and you know, I just pushed through the crowd through all of you. And Jesus, but he healed me. The blood has stopped. And I think sometimes we can become just wanting things to be so clinical and so neat and so clean and so pristine. And yet the reality is we're all coming in here with our lives on the ragged edge at times. There's need issues, there's sin issues, there's things that God has done in the past that you need to be speaking up of over and, and declaring the goodness and the faithfulness of God and how he's seen you through. And you're like, yeah, but I want anybody to know. Like her? Like her, you don't want anybody to know? So here's the word of the Lord to you. What happened? Let the Lord get glory. Let him, you share your story of what Jesus has done for your life. I'm not talking about bragamonies. We've all heard bragamonies, right? It's like a testimony where it's more about the person and what, you know, what their life was than it is about the Lord and what he's done. 
We're not talking about that. We're talking about testimonies. And uh, as one pastor said, testimony. We all want the money, but none of us want the testing. Testimony, right? Yeah, bad joke. But, but this is the idea. I mean, we all want the healing, you know, uh, in the story, but none of us want to go through the, the testing of it. But if you've gone through the testing of it, it's time to give glory to the Lord. It's time to speak up and give the Lord the glory to him. One day, all of this sickness, all of this disease will be gone. Revelation 21.4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. When the, world, when the Lord created the world, none of this existed. Man sinned and they came in. And we still deal with the consequences of sin in these physical bodies, in the culture, and the society we live in. But a day is coming when all of that will be gone. And until that time, we should be um, setting our eyes on the Lord and looking for him to see us through these difficulties that we face. Let's keep on uh, reading. Of course, we've interrupted a story, right? We have a desperate dad on his face before Jesus saying, please, my daughter is dying. And now the procession stops. And he wants to know, who touched me? Nobody touched you. Yeah, nobody touched you. Let's go. No, no, no. Somebody touched me. And, and everything has come to a screeching halt. If you're the dad, you can feel maybe things, you know, the pressure begin to rise. Like, come on, we've got to get going. And yet, I said that the reason why he called out the woman was that she could give tests, a testimony of what God had done in her life. And there could be that, you know, be of good cheer, daughter, go in peace connection with Jesus, but maybe it's for Jairus too. Maybe it's for Jairus to see, you've asked me to heal, and I just healed this person right here. We're on our way to your house. You can have faith. You can believe, because this is what has just taken place. So, you know, let's see, let's move on. This sake of time, let's, let's skip down here. Um, Let's go to verses 49 through 56. And here we're going to see Jesus having power over death. So we pick the story up. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. Wow, that person needs some help on how to deliver a message, don't you think? <laughs> what? <laughs> and so... I mean, you have this rejoicing, and now you have this dad that has just been told this. And again, you can imagine his eyes just shooting straight to the Lord and just looking at him with desperation. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, Do not be afraid. Only believe. She will be made well. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and the mother. Well, I mean... What a contrast. You have Jesus calling a woman out in the middle of a throng of people to give a testimony, to hear, this, to hear the story of what has just happened. But now he goes to a house where everybody's gathered around, and he's like, not bringing everybody in. Only a few are going to see what's going to happen here. The ways of the Lord, they're beyond our knowing and understanding. But nonetheless, um, they go in, verse 52, Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, Do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. Now, they don't understand his language. They don't have the updated dictionary that sleeping means, um, you know, she's not uh, dead in the sense of being gone forever, that there's this uh, resurrection is about to happen. Um, so he's speaking in, in these terms. It's not that the girl had just fallen asleep. It's, this is a word that Jesus is introducing, it becomes one that he uses again with Lazarus. It's something that is picked up by the writers of the New Testament and when it talks about a Christian who dies and that they are sleeping. So the idea is she, she's going to come back. Don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> but their response to him was they ridiculed him knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand and called saying, Little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned and she arose immediately and he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished 
but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So again, what a, what a contrast, right? He calls the woman out so everybody can know, but here he says, don't tell anyone. Why is that? I don't know. Maybe it was the ridicule he had just gone through. Maybe it's a ridicule. It's like, you know, these people are going to, they don't want to believe, then they don't have to believe. Don't give them anything to believe. Don't know. I know when the Lord shows up, it's not good to ridicule him, but to embrace him and to have expectation upon him. So here we see him having power over, the de- over death. What have we seen? We've seen Jesus have power over a storm in chapter 8. We've seen Jesus have power over Satan. We've seen him have power over... Um, a long-standing disease, um, we are ailment, and we have seen him now have power over death. We're getting a picture of who the Lord is. Interesting parallel. The woman had the flow of blood for 12 years, and Jairus' daughter was how old? 12 years old. And, and I don't know what you do with it. It's just it's an interesting uh, you know, set of numbers. I'm sure Jairus, when he first heard the word, thought, man, it's all over. It's too late. Shouldn't have stopped. Certainly the man who delivered the message thought that. Don't bother the teacher. Your daughter's dead. (laughs) It's just like, thanks a lot. But you know, for the Lord, when the clock or the timer goes to zero, it doesn't mean it's over, does it? This... You know, life is over. It's, it's wound down. It's out. But that doesn't mean it's over for the Lord. And I just think we should all have faith in the Lord. How long should you have faith in the Lord? Well, in this case, have it beyond death. Because the Lord has said he's going to do something. Uh, you can imagine how Mr. and Mrs. Jairus must have just rejoiced and been so excited. And... Um, uh, I think it would have been a hard one to keep quiet. What do you think? That your daughter was dead. Plenty knew. It would have been plenty enough when she was just walking around that something had taken place. Amazing to see the kindness and the grace of the Lord. Maybe, maybe you, we do this. We say, well, the Lord's got to show up by tomorrow because if he doesn't show up by tomorrow, then it's too late. And then tomorrow comes and you're like, well, actually... I guess it doesn't have to happen today. (laughs) I guess uh, things didn't kind of come to the end like I thought they were going to come. It's like, well, certainly within a week. And then that week comes. And now you look back and maybe it's been five years. And you're like, well, I mean, I keep thinking it's coming to the end. And yet this thing keeps on getting stretched out longer and longer. Because the Lord has a whole different set of ways in which he operates, right? So out of time doesn't mean out of time with the Lord. Out of power does not mean out of power. Out of money does not mean out of money. The Lord is capable. It is like, and I close with this this illustration here, the children of Israel. How long did their sandals last? 40 years. That's a good pair of shoes. I doubt any of you have a pair of shoes that's 40 years old and, and that you wore every day crossing the wilderness. It just, and you can hear him saying, man, where are we going to get sandals when we need sandals? Well, I don't know. I, picked, I brought some extra ones. And it's like, well, these sandals are still good. Well, they're not going to last forever. And actually, they did last forever, if, in a sense, right? They saw them through the entire wilderness journey. And for some of us, we're like, well, you know, I'm all out. It's, it's all dried up. It's not going to work. It can't last forever. And I was like, no, it's, it's fine. Those sandals are good. Don't worry about it. And the Lord is sustaining you. Sometimes God delivers us out of the circumstances, and sometimes he delivers us through with a really good pair of sandals. And both of them are the work of the Lord. Hey, deliverance is great. Deliverance is wonderful, and it's beautiful. But we are only the servants of the Lord. We are just the slaves of Jesus. And if he wants to steward us to steward a trial for 40 years, then we're going to steward that trial for 40 years. Be a good steward of that trial. And if he wants to deliver you out of it, then he can deliver you out. The hard thing is when we see somebody get delivered and we just have a really good pair of sandals. It's like, 
Why did they get delivered? Why am I still walking in these same sandals? Because it's all for the glory of God. It's for our own sanctification, our own growth. And he knows what we need. But as we close here, maybe there's a desperate need in your life. Maybe there's something that you just need to see Jesus show up in your life and ask him to work and to move. You need to have faith. There needs to be some desperation on your part. There needs to be some fervency. We're going to take a, a moment here to pray and, um, and just call upon him. Let's, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we turn our eyes to you. And right now, we want to be like those that were on the shore at Capernaum, waiting, welcoming you, bringing our desperate situations, whether it's that paralytic man that was brought to you, or whether it's some sickness in our body, or whether it's some crisis in a family. Lord, we want to come to you. And as we began, we believe, Lord, the words that we said are true, is that your shoulders are big, and you never get tired of desperate people coming to you. And we know how to come. You want us to come in faith. You want us to come in humility. But Lord, both of those things are works of your spirit. Faith is a gift from you. Even brokenness is something you develop in our hearts. You bring us to that place, whether it be through circumstances or some other means. And I pray, Lord, that we would find all of those things present. And if our faith is too small, then, Lord, help our small faith. And, Lord, if we are desperate, only a little, then make us more desperate, Lord, more passionate to see you show up in our lives, to show up in our family's life. And so we come, Lord. We want to welcome you to work in our lives.